Last week, in getting some feedback, John had mentioned some other references that were helpful to our study, and I referenced the Swedish method. Somebody asked me about that, so I thought I'd review this. I probably should just plan on doing this annually anyway as a reminder of a great tool for Bible study. Uh, I don't know what you're doing now. I don't know what it looks like for you to open the Bible in the course of the week, read something, and then think on it. Uh, But I want to at least offer you this option for how to think through uh, some of these uh, passages when you open the Word and read it in the course of the week. Um, So we've looked at this before, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on introducing the method. I want us to actually practice it in Psalm 65. So the Swedish method actually did begin in Sweden uh, back in the 1940s or so. Uh, A man in a church there was teaching uh, people how to study the Bible. Years later, a missionary came across a group of college students using this method of Bible study and named it the Swedish method because of the Swedish students that were practicing it. The idea here is to overcome the problem of reading the Bible. You get to the end of the text and you stop reading, and then what? Well, you read your Bible, and now you've stopped reading, and you get on with the rest of the calendar of events for the day. Uh, The hard work is not in the reading. Most of you are probably at least average readers, if not above average The hard part is thinking about what you're reading. Most of us probably like are more critical in in a in in the right sense of that word, analyzing. We're more critical of movies we watch than of Bible passages we read. Not that we're looking to pass judgment on the Bible, but oftentimes we're thinking through a plot line and we get to the end and we say things like, well, that didn't have much of a plot or They never really did resolve that problem or, you know, they didn't develop that character because our minds were thinking, they were expecting something, they were anticipating, waiting for, analyzing. A lot of times we read the Bible and the mind just isn't engaged that way. We're not thinking, I need to analyze, I need to uh, reason my way through this text, I need to ask questions. So the goal of any instruction regarding how to study the Bible is to prepare you for that moment when you get to the last word of your Bible reading and now have to decide what to do. Do I think through this more or do I just close my Bible and move on, hoping that, you know, there was some kind of washing influence, which I think there would be even if you just read the Bible. Uh, I had a Bible teacher in high school, I guess, who said, you know, Uh, When we read the Bible, it's kind of like water running through a colander. You know, it won't hold all the water, but it'll be a cleaner colander for having had water pass over it. Um, So there's something to be said for just reading your Bible. But that's about all you can say. Um, The the rich benefit is in the thinking, letting the mind be renewed by the word. Um, And why would we... Why would we do that? Why would we study the Bible? Well, remember, we're, we're confident in the summary of uh, the Reformers who began with sola scriptura, scripture alone, as the sole authority 
There is no other. As the sufficient authority, it is everything we need for life and godliness. So scripture is the sole sufficient authority for how we live and for the doctrine that we hold to. Uh, We study the Bible. Uh, Here's a good reason. Because of the perspicuity of scripture. You might remember that word, perspicuity. It means clarity, ironically. Uh, Why not just say clarity of Scripture, right? Well, because big words make us sound smarter, uh, so we use those. Perspicuity, it simply means the clarity. It can be understood. Um, This is rooted in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So God has revealed himself in creation, yes, but in in words that can be understood. Now, I'm not saying that means there aren't times you'll have questions and think, I don't know what this means. What I'm saying is this isn't beyond our grasp. God knew what he was doing in communicating to us. And he, he says these things belong to us. And then we just think of, the reality of the written word. And of course, we could add uh, the, the heard word. Uh, for many years, a lot of the teaching was passed down orally. Uh, we're very accustomed now to the idea of a, a written revelation. It's come to us in uh, written form. We have it that way. Matthew 22, Jesus, in critiquing some of his critics, says, Have you not read what was said to you by God? Now, that was in a bit of an adversarial conversation. But what if if the Holy Spirit, as our comforter and friend and exhorter, would come to us and say, in our moments of frustration, in our moments of kind of trying to make things work on our own, in our moments of being so busy with what we think is most important, We had to get that school done. We had to get the assignments done. We had that work project to do. We had those people to serve. Everything that crowds out reading the Bible and thinking about it. What if the Holy Spirit used Jesus' words and said to you, what are you doing today? Have you not read what was said to you by God? It puts a whole new light on reading our Bibles. God has spoken to us. And the question is, have we not given any attention to what God has said to us. So we want to use either this tool, maybe just a part of what you have on your handout there, but in some way we want to trigger these gears to start turning so that as we read sentences and paragraphs of what God has said to us, our minds are thinking. We are wanting Grease for those gears so that we're thinking rightly. So let's look at this Swedish method briefly. You have it there in your handout, and then we'll practice in Psalm 65. The Swedish method started with three icons. A light bulb, which was to remind us of simply something to see. I read a passage, and this is, this is the basest level of thinking. It's literally looking at a word that might stand out. Maybe it's a big word. Maybe it's the word illumination or sanctification. 
And, and all you have to do to answer this first question, what do you see, is just find that big word and, and just think on that word. Uh, you might find a subject and a verb. If you're kind of familiar with English grammar, you can underline that subject once and that verb twice, and maybe there's even a direct object. Three times, underline that one, right? Uh, you're just thinking through basics of a sentence, of a key word. What shines in this verse? You know, you read a phrase like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I shall not lack. Well, there's, there's key words there. There's that shepherd, and then there's this lack. And what's the, how do they relate? And the relationship is, if I have this, I won't have lack. If I have the shepherd, I don't miss out on anything. And so even just two words and just thinking, how do they go together? Why are those two words there? It grabs our attention. Maybe it's something surprising. You weren't expecting that phraseology. Um, something that's repeated. All of, all of God's word is, is latent with his design, but sometimes it strikes our minds as odd that some key word would be repeated over and over again in a text. Like, we would think he could say it once and that would be good enough, but for some reason, in some passages, you see it a couple of times. That's worth noting, in, in some way at least thinking on. Why is that repeated? You might ask or, or look for some key word about God. Maybe it talks about the Creator or talks about His steadfast love. And you start seeing that as an anchor for whatever else is going on in this paragraph. There's a lot of steadfast love in this text. I need to think on that and understand it. Otherwise, I miss the rest of it. So something to see. It's kind of a, it could almost be a cursory view of a paragraph. What, what just jumps out? When you first turn that light on, what, what shines the brightest to you? It's not even... It's not a theological analysis. It's not a right answer. It's just, Lord, I've prayed, as it says at the top of your page there, open my eyes that I would behold wondrous things out of your law. Like, let the light shine. Just show me what I need to see. And that question is engaging your mind now. You're on guard. Uh, it's like going to somebody's house. You've never been there before and you have a house number and you're driving slowly down the street looking like some creepy burglar, you know, scoping out homes and some of the houses aren't marked well and some mailboxes, a number's peeled off and like nothing's helpful and you're, you're looking for that house number. Well, when you open your Bible this week, be looking for something. You, you want to see wonderful things in the word of God. So something to see. The second icon is a question mark, something to ask. What is difficult to understand in the passage? Maybe not even difficult to understand, but at first read, you don't understand it, and you want to figure that out. So you might underline a word or use a different color pen, and you mark something and say, that, that's something I, I need to figure out. I don't see how that fits. I don't know what that word means. If I could ask the writer... What did you mean by this, David? You know, it says here, it's when he you know, was hiding from Saul in the caves when he wrote this. Well, that's a little insight into, oh, that's what the author was thinking when he wrote this. Now, we know God, by his Holy Spirit, used men to write his word. And yet, all those 
writings come in a context, an original setting. So we might ask, what was the author thinking when he wrote this? What was going on here? A lot of times in the New Testament, we know what was going on. It, It comes in some kind of context. We might know that Paul was in prison when he wrote a certain letter. We can certainly see the life of Jesus and hear what he's saying in these different scenarios. Something to ask. What do I need to understand in this text that seems foggy to me? You might not always come up with an answer right away. The Swedish method was designed not to answer people's questions with just like a trivia game. Uh, so you don't, they didn't sit in a group and ask their question and, and wait for the answer and then have the pastor clarify, well, this is the answer. The Swedish method was designed to have these questions and to just let them linger, knowing that if we keep studying the word and keep reading, eventually we're going we're gonna to find the body of material that would help me understand what seemed hard to understand. So don't be afraid of unanswered questions. Be afraid of not asking questions. Be afraid of not engaging the Bible in such a way that you you want to study it, you want to rightly divide it, and you're not sure what this means. Well, write that question down and and know that you're going to get back to it. You could be reading through the Gospels. I remember, you know, reading in, I guess it was Matthew, and he's talking about those wineskins, and you don't sew the new ones on, new patch on to an old one. And and I'm thinking, like, what what does that mean for the, the truth, like, for me today. So I just wrote that down and then, you know, I had it on this yellow pad and it had pages and pages of like these unanswered questions. And years later, I went back and realized, you know, I could answer some of these questions now. I, I could, I can figure that one out. I could give an answer because of other reading. At the time, it seemed like, boy, I would not want to explain that in a children's Sunday school class because it would not be very clear. But years later, and I think I still have that yellow notepad, you can look at some of those questions and think, oh, that, that's not as hard now that I've read this or come to understand that. So something to ask. That's a way to engage your mind. Uh, and then the third original icon was simply an arrow steering us forward, something to do. How do I apply this to my life? And application is always a key part of Bible study, so there are other either acrostics or plans that will force you to wrestle with what it says, some kind of interpretation, and then it's going to ask you about application. What is this going to do for you today? How does this renew your mind so that you can please the Lord today and live right today? Love God and love others today. So something to see, something to ask, something to do. Over the years, uh, there were a couple others added you can see the, the Bible icons somewhere to look. Um, and, and you might just think of a phrase. You might think of a Bible story, a Bible character. What else in the Bible would, would raise its hand to say, oh, here's something else to add. And if you would recognize that hand, you could turn there and you'd be like, that is very helpful. That's, that explains or it gives a real life illustration in the life of Saul or the life of Daniel of this Bible principle. Uh, when, you, when you read, God is my refuge. Well, in our minds, we probably are familiar with that and we kind of just get on through that psalm. Um, but it might be helpful to think of, 
Uh, you know, maybe that Old Testament reading in the books of the law that seemed tedious and a couple of chapters on cities of refuge. And then you start thinking, wow, yeah, somebody could be involved in a workplace accident that kills someone else. Now that family is chasing them down to kill them and get revenge, and they could flee to a city of refuge and make their case. There was an accident. It, it just happened, and, and I'm not guilty of some kind of malicious murder. Well, there's a real-life illustration kind of tucked away in Levitical law of a refuge. You're being accused, but you hide in Christ, and he shelters you, and you're, you're declared righteous, innocent in a sense. You're not found guilty. Uh, so there's, there's ways to ask questions where other texts are going to just kind of come to the table, and now you have a bigger answer than what you were beginning with. Somewhere to look. Someone to tell. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, because when that's happening, then you're going to find yourself speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Then you're going to be posting scripture. Then you're going to be ready in a lobby conversation when somebody's pouring out their woes to say, hey, maybe this is helpful. I read this this week. And you, and you just give them the verse. You're not waxing eloquent in commentary. You don't have to claim that you fully understand everything you read. You just know this stood out to me. It was something to see or I had a question to ask. But I, I, I'll just leave this with you. And it's someone to tell. Maybe the thought of, you know, a husband and wife or a family devotion time seems like way out of reach, too complicated. Well, what if you just read your Bible and simply took a highlighter and highlighted a word or a phrase, uh, an attribute of God, and then just shared that with the family at dinner and took 30 seconds and then thanked God for the meal and ate? Well, you'd be well on your way to at least having that little bit of guiding kind of compass influence on your family by simply sharing what did you see in the Bible. I think at times we think if we're going to share the Bible with someone, we have to be, you know, some kind of gifted prophet or evangelist or preacher or a real scholar, and that's just not true. You just have to have the word in you to spill it out on someone else. You're probably going to spill out something on somebody this week. It might be all the hardships you're going through, which admittedly, oftentimes we find ourselves complaining about kind of small inconveniences. But what does that tell us? That tells us that they were, they were filling our minds and they just naturally spilled out on people about our bad day and our bad week and this problem and that problem. Maybe we need to fill up with something different so that what's spilling out is something a little different. Roy, you were going to throw something in here. I don't know where this fits. It's something that, that, that I practice from time to time. It's not from everything that I read. There, there, are, there are times when I need to distill down something as a permanent thought that comes readily to hand because I know I'm going to need it. And I would think I might call that abiding word, you know. Uh, in John 15, I think it talks about the word abiding. And, and one of the example is in uh, Hebrews 12, where he's talking about the discipline of the children. He talks about scourging every son that he, that he receives. And um, 
the training of God can extreme, be extremely harsh seeming. And, and there's just a little phrase in there, endure hardship, hardness as discipline. And I, I distilled that down to a, a phrase, endure hardness, hardship as training. God is training you through these often feels like somebody took a whip to you in the circumstances, but that can be looked at as God's training me. What's he training me to? It may be just how to cry out to him in desperation that my foolish pride often stands in the way of, but, but the overall thing is how do you, there is a distillation that you need often to grab something from scripture and apply it right now I don't know where that would fit in this. Yeah. Uh, so Roy's talking about like thinking through the word and he used the word distill it down to something you can grab. When we get into Bible application, you'll often hear teachers use that language of a handle, something to kind of grab onto. That the idea there is like a almost like some of the memory tools that you might have to remember stuff in school or some list of presidents or your a little sing song tune to remember prepositions in English class. We're looking for something to help us keep it in mind. Um, we would just say, like, if you're going to do that, if you're going to kind of boil it down, which on one hand is helpful because it forces you into some kind of clarity in your own mind. Um, so I've written on this folder in my sermon preparation, something I've, I've heard from other preachers. They say, read yourself full. So Get in the text and read and read. And if you want to read commentaries, read. Get all these thoughts. Um, and then, then they say to write yourself empty. So make notes. Work at distillation. Um, think yourself clear uh, because eventually you can't take all this stuff and just back up a dump truck and dump it out on everybody. Uh, it has to have some kind of clarity and structure to it. Uh, and then they would say to preachers, pray yourself hot. Uh, make sure you're immersed in the word um, because that's the hope of, of its power and delivery. So the, the clarity is helpful in distillation, but I would just say be careful in sharing distilled thoughts that you steer people to the word. Um, you know, I, I love seeing quotes on somebody's, you know, posts from C.H. or C.S. Lewis or somebody. You know, that's great, but it's, it's not the word. So if you're sharing something that has, you know, helped you think through the word, I would say share that helpful device or summary, but remind them, this is where I got that. Um, this is the fullness, uh, and here's how I have applied it in my life. So that they're clear, here's the power, uh, and here's maybe the practice, the, the application as it works in my head. And frankly, we, we all know this, the way it works in my head may not be the way it works in your head. Um, so be prepared to have people say like, huh, yeah, that sounds helpful. And off they go, right? And what they might need in that moment is where you got that thought that you thought was so helpful um, because therein will lie that power. Finally, there's something to pray. Uh, we added this one on our sheet after working through that praying through the Bible short little booklet by Don Whitney. Uh, which just reminded us that we don't have to divorce Bible reading from prayer. 
if God was using this word to speak to us, then how do I use that word to long and to ask and to praise? So let's look over at Psalm 65. And you might say, oh, I'm not ready. Well, remember, if you're going to open your Bible and read this week, you're not ready in the sense of, I studied this and now I'm ready to study. No, that's not how it works. We're just going to open the Word and and we're going to either find something that stands out. We see it. I'm I'm not going to ask you for, hey, what do you think about this? It's just literally, what do you see? Point us to something. Draw our attention to it. Uh, What do we ask? What questions arise that we would love to answer We'll work through the icons here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you just, literally, I think you could read it in a minute. So take one minute, read Psalm 65, and then we'll take uh, some feedback. So remember, you're reading to engage your mind, and then we'll talk. That was one minute. Maybe it felt long. Maybe you finished. Maybe you didn't. Uh, my point would be be encouraged. One minute can cover some nice uh, text of scripture. So, again, we're not saying an hour of studying the word is mandatory every morning. We're saying uh, long for the word. Long to see God as often as you can in his word. Psalm 65. Um, if we were engaging our minds, with especially those first three thoughts, something to see, something to ask, something to do, um, what would you have fresh in your mind that you are ready to recognize or think on? Let me get us started. Gary? February 6th, and you can hear prayer. Oh, you who hear prayer. God hears our prayers. God hears our prayers. We can revisit some of these things, so if you add to something, I'll have a few comments to make, but I want to just just get the ideas out on the table. What else do you see you want to ask? Yeah, Um, Verse 5, you answer us with righteousness. You answer us with righteousness. That was one of my subjects. Verb underlines there. If you're diagramming or marking your sentence, you answer. It's a key subject and a key verb, uh, especially after we've seen earlier that this is the God named as you who hear prayer. What else? Beginning is praises due to you. Praise is due to you. What else goes with do in verse 1? Uh, well, God of abundance, so do praise for all the abundance is created. Verses 9 through. Verses 9 through. What was that, Caitlin? Through 13. Through 13. You see it all there? In verse 1, I have do circled and drawn a line to something else. Yeah, the vows to be performed. There's this oughtness, this obligation. Something's due, like my library book, and 
there's this vow to be performed. I, I, I said I would do something. Um, or at least something is demanded of me. Um, the first is do, like it's demanded of me. The second seems to imply voluntary, a vow I entered into. But there's, a, there's an oftness there that we, we need to wrestle with. This obligation, which at first sounds technical, but it's an obligation that's fed by mercy. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you meet this obligation, present yourself a living sacrifice. So that's not an obligation, it's not a bad thing. That, that helps us see, wait a minute, praise that you do. He's worthy of it, and I should want him to receive it. Uh, Marlene. So there's these there's this nearness dwelling in the courts, that Old Testament language of temple and tabernacle. New Testament is helping us think, okay, maybe somewhere to look. I go to Hebrews and I read about those courts and that tabernacle made with hands, and then I read of one that's different and better in Christ. Uh, what else, Roy? Oh, I know, I didn't hear that. Um, from verse 4 there. Uh, you choose and bring near. You know that from Old Testament Israel. Here's this people among another people. One of them is rejected and one of them is chosen. And at the moment, I'm not even talking Jacob and Esau. I'm talking Israel and the Egyptians. None of us have any qualms with the Egyptians being scourged with ten plagues and God's people being chosen and loved, taken to a promised land. And yet we get to the New Testament and hear this as the doctrine of election, and suddenly it's like, whoa, wait a minute. And I'm all, you know, for me, in the discovery of God's sovereignty and salvation, I was like, good night. Why, where, why didn't I see this in Old Testament Israel all these years? Um, you chose and brought near to dwell in your courts. Well, somewhere to look, I, I put Psalm 24. Well, this seems to be a contradiction. Who can ascend to the holy hill? Who can enter into the courts of God? Who can stand in his presence? Well, no one can. But now we come back to those verbs. Well, if God's doing this, if God's choosing and drawing near, then he must be fitting us to be able to do that. He must equip us with whatever we need. And if we lacked holiness before, he's given it to us. So even here in the Old Testament, I'm learning something about God's going to give me what I need be able to stand before him because one psalm is saying who can possibly stand before the Lord elsewhere could I stand before him if he numbers my transgressions of course not so even in the Old Testament I'm learning wait a minute I'm not fit to be with God and yet he's saying I'll I'll bring you near I'll I'll make you fit I'll take care of that so there's a lot to be thinking on even in that short couple of phrases that kind of just seem celebratory. Oh, yeah, you'll bring us near and, and we'll dwell in your courts. Well, engage your mind and think about that. What, why should you be able to do that? 
Or what happened to some in the Old Testament that tried to do that and they weren't supposed to be in there? Uzziah wasn't supposed to be in the tabernacle, uh, in the temple, and he marched in there to act like a priest and one of the greatest kings in Israel, the longest ruling king, the most prosperous king in at least development. Solomon kind of ruled the massive empire, but Uzziah, the longest reigning Mount Rushmore kind of king, and he dies and is buried in a pauper's field because he entered into the court and did something he wasn't supposed to do. He wasn't fit for that. So that's what we understand, and yet God's saying, I'll take care of it. I'll I'll fix it all. I'll make you fit for holy heaven. All right, what else? Yeah, Alan? Pops up to me is dependency on God for all this, uh, all the subject verbs. So if you move into something, you hear a prayer, uh, just, just going down through. So you may be going in and out, you visit, you water, you uh, all the subject verb coming back to God. Yeah. So a lot of just, again, it sounds like grammar work, but it's, it's thinking through the text. Uh, God as the subject of all those verbs. Like really, that whole second half of the psalm is you, the one who does this and this and this. You visit the earth. You water it. You enrich it. You provide. You prepare. You water. You bless its growth. You do all this. Well, that's all kind of almost parenthetical description of the original expression. You, the one who hears prayer. Why is the psalmist so confident in praying to this God? Well, he starts off with recognizing he's worth it. He's due this kind of praise, but I'm going to keep praying to him because he's the God that does all this other stuff. It started with, we shall be satisfied. Verse 4, always underline satisfied in a text. It's telling you something. It's either telling you what the world is striving for or what we have in Christ. And here it starts there. God's drawn us near. We're going to be satisfied. Why? Because this is the God who established mountains, who stills seas, roaring waves, who stills the tumult of the peoples, who waters the earth and makes it grow and does all this stuff. If God does all that, why wouldn't I go to him? If he's the guy that gets it done in every way, why won't I take my stuff to him? Why won't I cast my cares to him if he's promising he will make it a matter of his own? So there's a lot there, and all those subjects and verbs remind us God does this, God does that, God does this too. Oh, that's why it said, he's the one who hears prayers, I'm going to go to him. Paul, you had something. Yeah, building right off of what Alan just said is, uh, it's you, you, you this, do this, do this, and then if you get to verse 8, kind of sandwiched in the middle of the text, it says, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs, and just thinking about the purpose behind all of his hearing, all of his bringing in, all of his folding in, all of the glory of creation, all of the riches and the abundance and the overflow is for his glory produced, reflected in actual awe 
at the person and work of, of God and his character and who he is and how he acts. But then also for joy, too, um, that it's for our joy and for his glory. So Mark verse 8, for big idea, uh, the God who is glorified in all that he has made and the God who is glorified in the joy that we have in all that he has made. Verse 9, the river of God is full of water. So in, on my page, I have full circled, and then I'm going back to verse 4, we shall be satisfied. Why? Because God's the fullness of everything that can satisfy us. Now, when I do it, I, I, most of my Bible markings I just do on paper, so I scribble all over it. I don't necessarily want every page of my Bible looking like this, or I'd never be able to find subjects and verbs anymore. Uh, but if it's helpful to you once in a while and you don't mind investing in some paper, print it up and, and do some real work. Maybe, maybe by practicing on paper, you won't have to mark your Bible. Your eye will just see it and you'll be, you'll be so used to thinking that when you read satisfied in one verse and just four verses later you read full, you'll be like, wait a minute, I just read about fullness. Oh yeah, there it was, satisfaction. That's becoming a theme in this text. We're, we're looking at this one who's crying out to the Lord, oh, you who hear prayer. And then we understand why this psalmist would come to the one who hears prayer because he satisfies with his fullness. I'll go to him. If he can calm roaring waves and cyclones and even tumultuous peoples, should I not expect that he could calm a, a busy heart, a busy mom's life, a hectic dad's pressures of, am I going to be one of the ones laid off at this job, and trying to provide for family? When our hearts are tossed, then let's go to the Lord. Because this psalm said he's the one who specializes in calming. What else? Yeah, David. Um, I'm just looking at how the, this psalm really emphasizes the response of God's people um, and all creation, really. At the end of each uh, paragraph, um, so end of verse 4, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. Yet the second paragraph, um, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. At the end of verse 13, they shout and sing together for joy. There's this response of praise and adoration for God himself, which ties right back into verse 1. Praise is due to you. It's not, you know, the joy that we see in verse 13 and 8 is not separated from God. It's not we're happy over here because we're just happy now. No, we're happy and joyful in God. And it is due to him. It's not something that's forced out of us because it's due. No, it is our joy and our delight to praise him to whom that is due. Yeah, so it, there's like all these overlapping ideas. We start with due and the sense of obligation. I have to perform my vows. But what we see is not a tedious punching the clock. I have to do this. It, it's... Exclamation point, I'm satisfied in your goodness, in your presence. 
And then the next paragraph ends with shouts of joy. And the last paragraph ends with shouts and singing together for joy. And we realize all that praise that's due, you know, it's like us gathering on Sunday and, and singing whatever your favorite song is. You know, people often tell me, oh, that was my favorite song. I don't know if that means I'm supposed to, like, sing it next week with them again. <laughs> that's what it means? Okay. Uh, we all know what it is to see your favorite song there and to just, oh, I can't wait to sing that. That's what's going on here. That's giving God what is due to him. That's, that's fulfilling your vows, your obligation. Because obligation isn't, isn't a bad thing. It's just the norm. This is the expectation that comes back to what Paul showed us in verse 8 or highlighted for us there. Uh, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Elsewhere in the Psalms, we read about God's plan to have his glory fill the earth. Well, that means praise is due. Everyone will praise God. Everyone will give him the glory due his name. Philippians 2 tells us that. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's the norm expectation. As believers, as those who have been chosen and brought near, who are dwelling in his courts, in that place where we meet God in Christ, our joy is every day to to praise him for all of these things that he does, for his goodness, for the satisfaction we have in him, for the fact that he's blessing our growth every day, just as he's blessing the growth of moss and trees and everything else out there. Uh, so David was just highlighting for us that this is, this is a joyful thing. The do and the performing is an eager, joyful expression. All right, time for just one or two more. I don't want to miss somebody. So if you have something, let's throw it out here now. John? Uh, Colossians 128 really talks back to all of that what we were just talking about. Duty. In 128, uh, Paul says, we proclaim him, meaning Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man all wisdom so that we may present every man completing Christ. And so he's talking about salvation. We're completing Christ. And we know all of these blessings that we've just been... And so Paul is getting joy out of presenting the gospel to bring other people into the kingdom so that they can know. So Paul has that burden. He's been commissioned. He can't do anything but do it. But he's experiencing all this joy. It's not a burden in one sense. It's the joy. The joy that we can also experience. Colossians 1, 28, the lengthy prayer and then Paul's celebration of seeing everyone come to this joy and maturity in Christ. Good. What else? Any questions to ask? Those are a little harder. They often take a little more thought. When when I circled, we shall be satisfied, I I jotted the question, well, what does this mean for today? Because that sounds great to think satisfied in Christ and, you know, he's enough and he's our salvation, he's our eternal life. What does that mean for today? When today, you know, isn't very satisfying in the outcomes of meetings or events 
and flat tires and all those things that don't feel satisfying at times. So we have to wrestle with what real satisfaction is. Um, Oh, verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Uh, That's pretty bold language. But we would do well to ask, what do we know from Genesis to Psalm 65 about atoning for transgressions? Because we can jump to the New Testament and kind of not have to think as much. Just, oh, yeah, well, of course God atones for our transgressions. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. But that's not what the psalmist knows yet. The psalmist only knows you, you have to go out into your herd and scour over the body of every lamb, making sure there's no scab or blemish from scrapes on rocks or thorns. You have to find this perfect lamb, and it's this tedious process, and you know, you finally lift up some back leg and find some, you know, bug bite or tick mark or something on its leg, and oh, that one's out, go to the next one. And, and they, they lived in that process of searching for the perfect sacrifice to offer in atonement for their sin, to cover their sin, just as they did back in Egypt when they took the perfect lamb and its blood was wiped on the doorpost as a sign, as a covering, so that the spirit of judgment would pass over them. That's what they knew, and at this point, they understood atoning, covering for sin, but it was repeated. It was happening all the time. There were daily sacrifices for sins. There were broader seasons of sacrifice. There was the annual Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where that sacrifice was made once for a whole nation. So there was, a, there was an increasing expansion of certain sacrifices, and yet there's one more we're lacking, and that comes to us in Hebrews, that once, not just for the nation for the year, but the once for all, all time and all covering. So even that phrase, you atone for our transgressions, to the psalmist was, man, that's good and it and it works for now but as we read that we're thinking there's something better to come Uh, there's good news there and if you were marked by any transgression this past week then you can celebrate uh, the hope that is ours in Christ that's Psalm 65 there may be a lot more there you want to read even this week if there are roaring seas and waves in your heart and mind come to Psalm 65 And remember this God who answers our prayers, calms those storms. Um, This is what he does. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Make us us students of it. Uh, Give us a thirst for your word. Uh, May these kinds of studies where we see so much truth unfold in just a few moments Uh, Remind us of the psalmists who would exclaim, how we love your law. Lord, may we see this not as just uh, imposition of boundary, but may we see this as your word to us for our good always. Lead us into the rest of your word this week, we pray. Uh, Help us to wage war against anything that would demand 
our time and energy uh, claiming to be more important than seeing you revealed in your word. We'll need your help with that. We have uh, long-established patterns of ignoring your word or tabling it for a better time. Um, And this has been to our detriment. But by your spirit, would you convict us and empower us to live better this week in the way that we approach your word to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.